Hey friends, this episode of the Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of the Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rulia University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we're going to continue that conversation that we started last week with our ER-positive early-stage breast cancer. I thought last week's discussion was fantastic, and I'm really excited to jump back into it today. Yeah, listeners, remember to check out our show notes. We really go through everything, go through all the details in a very succinct way. And last week, we talked about the rationale for chemotherapy regimens in general. We talked about endocrine therapy. We're excited today to talk about how we put this together with the Oncotype and the Mammoprint scores that we see many of these patients getting. Yeah, let's do it. Sounds good, guys. Let's roll that show. So guys, we're back in our awesome discussion about ER-positive early-stage breast cancer. And so just to remind our listeners of where we left off, Eva, can you remind us of the case that we were discussing last time? And we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, so we had a 37-year-old patient with hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer. She had a lumpectomy to remove her 2.8 centimeter intraductal mammary carcinoma, which was grade one with no special type. And she had a sentinel lymph node biopsy that was negative. It's been a couple weeks since her surgery and she's now back to us to review some of the additional testing that we always talk about. We'll go into the oncotype and the mammoprint now. But first, really what we're talking about with this patient is we already talked about the endocrine therapy adjuvantly. But how do we determine who needs chemotherapy and when do we send this genomic profiling testing to determine that answer? That's a great question. And so first, I will tell you who doesn't need chemotherapy as one way to answer your question, Divik. So that includes people with special type histologies with essentially low metastatic potential. It all makes sense, right? So these are patients with pure tubular, pure mucinous pure cribriform or encapsulated or solid papillary carcinomas. And it's important to note that that lobular histology has a poor predictive response to chemotherapy, which makes it really challenging to identify an optimal treatment paradigm. And so thankfully, there were all of these genomic tests that were developed. And the one that we often hear about is the oncotype And that is a 21 different gene assays that they look at to determine who benefits from chemotherapy or not. And it spits out a score between zero and 100. And so that's how we can decide whether or not these patients would benefit from chemotherapy. So the thing that we all need to remember, and this will come up in clinical practice, and this will also come up on your exams, is who do we send these gene expression assays on? This is going to be sent on patients with ER-positive tumors. Patients with tumors that are 0.5 to 5 centimeters in size, because you should know that patients with tumors that are greater than 5 centimeters or T3 and above are going to get chemotherapy regardless. But the question is, what do we do about that group of people with tumors that are 0.5 to 5 centimeters in size? And then we also want to include patients with based on their, their nodal involvement. So specifically in Premenopausal women, if they have nodal involvement, then they're going to get chemotherapy regardless. But in postmenopausal women that have between zero to three nodes positive, 
there is benefit of sending this study as well. Yeah, Ronick, that's incredibly important, those criteria that you mentioned. And remember the dollar bills, you have the $1, $2, and $5 bills for T1C, T2, and T3. So greater than that $5 bill, need chemo. I want to talk about the Oncotype score and how we got to this point and the early validation studies before I throw it to Dan to talk about the actual randomization that got to the real question of who can we de-escalate for. What happened was, as we found out in the 90s and 2000s, we knew that many women who had hormone receptor positive breast cancer may not need chemotherapy. We talked about in the last episode how there's lower pathologic complete response rates, that maybe there's some women that were over-treating with chemo and we could spare them the toxicity. There was a push to figure out, is there a molecular profile of the tumor that can predict response to chemotherapy? Because that's the critical question. Who can we give just endocrine therapy to? Early on, that's how we developed luminal A versus luminal B versus basal type, things that we talked about in the breast cancer vocabulary episode, and we'll link some of that to our show notes again. But one key thing that was created was this Oncotype DX recurrence score. The other test that was created was the Mammaprint score. The Oncotype uses 21 genes. The Mammaprint uses 70 genes. These are just two tools. I'm going to focus the discussion on the Oncotype for now. Let's talk about the Oncotype score. What does it mean? Well, like Ronick said, it's a score from 0 to 100. And what we really did was, there's a really good paper in the JCO in 2008 that, check out our show notes for the details, but I'm going to briefly summarize it here for you. What we found was, what are the women that have a very high risk of recurrence at 10 years? And we knew that was the women who had a recurrence score that was really greater than 18. That seemed to be a pretty good cutoff for women who had a high risk of developing recurrence at the 10-year mark, greater than that 5 to 10% chance of developing recurrence. And then we said, well, what are the women that probably don't need chemotherapy, that we could spare chemotherapy? And that was a recurrence score less than 11, so 10 or less. It was only 2% chance of recurrence at 10 years. So if you have a score that's greater than 18 or a score that's less than 11, we knew that for those women, they either needed chemo or didn't need chemo because of their risk of recurrence. Then you had that gap, right? What do we do for those patients in the gap where we're unsure? And as we refined the test more, we really found out that that gap was really between the recurrent score of 11 to 25. That is the question mark of who will benefit from chemotherapy and who could be spared from chemotherapy. So I mentioned a lot of numbers there. I said 18, I said less than 11, and I somehow landed on this 11 to 25, and that's just because the data evolved. And really what I'm saying is there's an intermediate range that we found, a recurrent score of 11 to 25, that we weren't sure who needs chemo and who could do endocrine therapy alone. And that's how this Taylor X study came about, like we're tailoring your treatment. So Dan, can you tell us a little about the Taylor X study? So the Taylor X study really was intended to try and answer this question, try and understand a little bit better about this intermediate risk population with Oncotype DX recurrent scores between 11 and 25. Is there a way that we can further divide that group and understand who's going to benefit most from addition of chemotherapy and whom we can spare? So patients with an Oncotype DX score between 11 and 25 are randomized to either receive endocrine therapy alone or chemotherapy plus endocrine therapy. And what they found was that 
postmenopausal women with a score between 11 and 25 did not derive benefit from the addition of chemotherapy. But within the premenopausal group, it seemed like there were a couple of different strata of people deriving benefit. Premenopausal women in general did see a modest benefit from addition of chemotherapy. And in the low intermediate risk, so in a range between a score of 11 and 15, there's about a 1% benefit. And at the upper end of the intermediate range between a score of 16 and 25, we were seeing about a 4% increased benefit in disease for survival. So the takeaway from Taylor X was in node negative patients with an intermediate score between 11 and 25, postmenopausal women don't benefit from the addition of chemotherapy, but premenopausal population did see a modest benefit, particularly in the upper end of that range between 16 and 25. And I think that's a really interesting finding in that study because what it tells us is these are premenopausal women. Why, why is there a difference between premenopausal and postmenopausal? And one thought is, what if this just has to do with ovarian suppression? Not all of these women who had this higher score of that 16 to 25 range got ovarian suppression. So it makes you wonder, do we need the chemotherapy or could we consider ovarian suppression and still spare the chemotherapy? And that's an unanswered question, but I think that's important. So the numbers that we keep on throwing out here will be summarized. We're just giving you the details. There was a 4% benefit of chemo in addition to endocrine therapy for those women who are premenopausal node negative in the 16 to 25 range, which is why we're still reaching for chemotherapy in those women. But you'll see that some people would say an option would be ovarian suppression and sparing chemotherapy. So I wanted to say that. But Dan, what about in node positive disease? We talked about for premenopausal women, they're going to get chemotherapy. But what about the postmenopausal women? So the study that looked at the node positive population with relation to the Oncotype DX score, that was the R-Exponder study. And so this study, it did include both pre- and postmenopausal women, but it included all patients with an Oncotype DX recurrence score of less than 26, so 0 to 25. And this study confirmed that premenopausal women, if they have node positive disease, greater than zero nodes positive, benefited from the addition of chemotherapy. We were seeing about a 5% improvement in, in disease-free survival with the addition of chemotherapy to endocrine therapy. But in the postmenopausal population, we did not see any benefit from the addition of chemotherapy to endocrine therapy in terms of disease-free survival, even in node positive disease. I think that's a really important study because, again, it shows us that there's this differential way that premenopausal and postmenopausal women are having recurrences of their breast cancer. And it really just shows us how important possibly ovarian suppression is. When you give chemo, you essentially provide ovarian suppression. We showed in trials that Dan talked about in the meta-analysis that you can do some switch therapy with AI and tamoxifen and things like that, and that works. So it just makes you wonder that if, what if we just had given these women ovarian suppression, would that be enough? Did we need the chemotherapy? And those are still some of the unanswered questions that are left. The other genomic assay, the print assay, which is a 70 gene assay, there was similar studies that were done, and this was in the MINDAC trial. We're not going to go through all the details, but they will be in our show notes. Here's one thing that I want all of our listeners to know, and it's going to make a ton of sense. Trust me, it will. Remember the number four. The key thing about the print is it has a genomic risk and it has a clinical risk. The idea behind that was, what if you had a high clinical risk and a low genomic risk? What if you had a low clinical risk and a high genomic risk? 
Or what if you had a high clinical risk and high genomic risk, right? Those are the options that you can kind of have or a low clinical risk, low genomic risk. And the idea here is we're not, let's go more than just this score that we're getting, but let's also add in clinical features. Clinical risk and breast cancer confused me for the longest time, but just remember the number four. If you have a grade one tumor, up to three centimeters is low risk. If it's a grade one tumor greater than three centimeters, that's high risk. So one plus three is four. If you have a grade two tumor, it's up to two centimeters. Two plus two is four. And if you have a grade three tumor, one centimeter. So a grade three tumor that's greater than a centimeter, that's a high risk tumor. And that's when we think about high clinical risk that you'll see. The other important thing with the number four, four lymph nodes. Remember that in our expander, we were looking at one to three lymph nodes, that's because greater than four lymph nodes is a higher risk feature that needs chemotherapy, and we didn't want to risk that randomization. We talked about last week the ABC trials, which were looking at, hey, can we exclude the anthracycline and the and just do the TC regimen that we had talked about? And listeners, check out that episode if you want a refresher or our show notes. And the key thing there was for hormone receptor positive women that had greater than four lymph nodes, they derived benefit from the addition of the anthracycline. Less than four lymph nodes, they didn't need that anthracycline and de-escalated their chemo. So that's a, just an example of how four lymph nodes is a higher risk cutoff. So remember the number four. Uh, thank you for going through all that. That was, was really helpful to, to try and understand. Okay, so we've figured out that our patient is going to benefit from chemotherapy now, how do we choose what chemotherapy regimen we're going to recommend? So all of our listeners should check out the last episode that we had that we went into the differences between dose-dense ACT and TC. But for these women, the thing that I always remember, again, is the number four. And the reason why I say that is we looked at that ABC trial, when do we need an anthracycline trial, and found that if there was hormone receptor positive and there was one to three lymph nodes the omission of anthracycline still had good outcomes. And it would be reasonable in that patient to consider not using the anthracycline necessarily. So if they need chemo, just a couple of lymph nodes in a hormone receptor positive case, you could just consider using TC times four. So the question is, when do we do this dose-dense ACT? Well, a few scenarios. If you have a really high recurrence score, I'm talking greater than 30, I'm going to reach for that DDACT because that patient has a higher risk of developing recurrence and dose-dense ACT could benefit that patient. The other patient that I'll think about adding the anthracycline in is higher grade tumors. If the patient has that grade three tumor that's also greater than one centimeter, remember the number four, that's another patient who I would consider adding the anthracycline and doing dose-dense ACT as opposed to just TC. So guys, this is all great. And you know, they Let's say our patient completes their chemotherapy, they continue their five years of endocrine therapy. What are the next steps that we should really be counseling our patients on? Because again, thankfully, our patients in many cases, especially in these early breast cancers, may be living for a very long time because of these advances in our treatment modalities. So like, what kinds of things should we be looking out for um, and counseling our patients on? So the most fundamental thing is to continue to see the patient for many years after they've completed treatment. So an oncologist should expect to follow up their patient between once a year and once every three months for the first five years. And that sort of depends on both the patient's level of comfort with their follow-up schedule and the concern on the oncologist's side for the risk of recurrence of their disease. If a patient had a lumpectomy, 
then of course they'll need to continue bilateral mammograms and you know they're going to be having radiation therapy as a part of that treatment if they had just a breast conserving therapy and so you want to wait until about 6 12 months after completion of radiation to start that mammography surveillance in patients with a strong family history oftentimes germline testing is indicated so that's something that needs to be discussed with the patient and they need to be given tools on how to counsel their family on the findings there. And for patients on tamoxifen, they need to have age-appropriate gynecologic exams because there is a small but real risk of endometrial cancers, again, because of that differential effect of tamoxifen on tumors in the endometrial lining. Again, because of the differential effect of tamoxifen on the receptors in the endometrial lining. Patients on enrobotase inhibitors should be having DEXA scans performed regularly, again, because there's a very high risk for bone loss when you're completely eliminating the influence of estrogen in the body. And for all patients who had exploration of their lymph nodes or other surgery in the axilla in particular, there needs to be monitoring for developmental lymphedema and early referral to physical therapy that's targeted at managing lymphedema. This is one of these things where when women are living a very long time after they complete their therapy, we have to be mindful of the impact our treatments have had long-term on their quality of life and is a major factor in limiting quality of life after therapy. These are great reminders and, and certainly good for us to keep in mind for sure. Now, guys, I want to switch gears just a little bit. In a disease like breast cancer, where again, there is a lot of research going on, we have these gigantic studies. I can't help but wonder whether or not there is any utility in more targeted agents. And if our listeners will recall in our lung cancer series, we had a whole episode dedicated to just targeted agents and, you know, the impressive outcomes that these targeted agents have had that change kind of the paradigm of that disease. So do we have anything like this for ER positive HER2 negative breast cancer that's localized? Yeah, we do. And we'll talk a lot about this in the metastatic setting, but it's less like the targeted mutations in lung cancer and more just a cell cycle specific target in the CDK4-6 inhibitors. And that's a drug class that we'll talk about. All of them end in Cichlib, if you're wondering for an easy way of memorizing this. And there was one important study for adjuvant therapy in women who have higher risk hormone receptor positive breast cancer that showed that these can be useful in the non-metastatic setting. And that was called the Monarch-E trial. And this used a drug called abemaciclib. Remember that cyclib. The one important thing about this drug is diarrhea. So I'll stop with that. Listen to our pharmacology episode if you guys want more information on, on this drug. But what this study did was it took higher risk women. These are women who had more than four lymph nodes. Remember, we talked about the number four, more than four lymph nodes. Or it took women with one to three lymph nodes that had another high-risk feature, greater than that $5 bill. Remember, greater than that $5 bill is always something that's higher risk, right? Greater than five centimeters and one to three lymph nodes. Or they could have had one to three lymph nodes and a grade three histology, high grade. Or they had a KI-67 that was greater than or equal to 20% in one to three lymph nodes. So these were lymph node positive women. If you have greater than four, they're higher risk, so it's reasonable to try this. Or if they had one to three in one of these other high risk features, greater than $5 bill, high grade, which is grade three, or KI-67 greater than 20%. And they randomized patients to abemaciclib plus endocrine therapy versus endocrine therapy alone. And 
the idea here was if they got two years of this abemaciclib treatment, would it improve their outcomes? And we found that for invasive disease-free survival, it improved from 80% with endocrine therapy alone to about 85% with endocrine therapy plus abemaciclib. So you got a 5% improvement if you added this abemaciclib for a two-year duration in these women. And we're hoping that that translates to durable, longer-term cure. And that's really one of the big takeaways of a targeted agent. The other targeted agent is the PARP inhibitor, but we're going to save that when we talk about our triple negative breast cancer patients. Got it. So right now, pretty much all we have available in the early breast cancer that's ER positive is the use of abemaciclib, a CDK4-6 inhibitor in these super high-risk patients, and then the possibility of using a PARP inhibitor, which like Vivek said, we'll talk about in a in a future episode. But that's 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 somewhat reassuring. Um, but you know, I can't help but wonder whether more things are on the horizon there. Guys, I think We've definitely covered a lot, but I, I, I really think what our listeners will benefit from is just that we go through a brief recap of the highlights of what we just discussed today. Yeah, I think the most important thing, the takeaways are send the Oncotype DX for hormone receptor positive tumors that are less than five centimeters. Remember that $5 bill. If it's greater than that, you're going to give chemo. And we're trying to figure out who needs chemo and who doesn't. It's less than five centimeters. And remember that if they are premenopausal and have a lymph node, they're going to get chemo no matter what. But if they're postmenopausal and have one to three lymph nodes, we can send this Oncotype score to determine who needs chemotherapy and who doesn't. The key thing after that is to check out our show notes because we have this broken down easier, but just in audio format. Anybody with a recurrent score, 26 or higher, needs chemo. Easy. If they are postmenopausal, 26 or higher is the only situation, even up to three lymph nodes, where they need chemotherapy. In premenopausal women, in the node-negative setting, it's the same thing. However, between the 16 to 25 range, chemotherapy is reasonable because it has a 4% benefit some would consider ovarian suppression in that setting. And the last thing is, for high-risk women, greater than four lymph nodes, remember the number four, that is an option to give abemaciclib in addition to endocrine therapy in the adjuvant setting, or if they have one to three lymph nodes and another high-grade feature, that's another reasonable indication for that abemaciclib drug. Awesome. Well, after a two-week marathon through ER-positive early-stage breast cancer, I think we really nicely recapped all that. And and listeners, we recognize this is a lot of information. And so definitely, definitely, definitely check out the show notes. Go back and listen to these episodes again. And really, it does make sense when you think about this very logistically and systematically. It's just because we have so many trials going on with breast cancer, there's just a lot of data to get through. So if you can extract the highlights like we've done for you today from these really important studies, it will help make your approach to your breast cancer patients that much more understandable and approachable. Yeah. And, you know, I think something I'm taking away from from this discussion is in cancers where we have good cure rates and we expect patients to live a very long time, it's really important to be mindful of survivorship issues. And, and that's why we see this trend towards trying to figure out who we can de-escalate chemotherapy for. 
you know, when we have a patient who may benefit from chemo, but might not, we have to be better and better about choosing which patients truly derive benefit before we expose somebody to potentially life-altering therapy. All right, guys. Well, I think that wraps up another fantastic episode of The Fellow on Call. Until next time, we'll see you all later. See you later. Peace. Peace.